the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I was up really late because I couldn't sleep. And so I was just scrolling social media aimlessly. And a friend of mine Snapchatted me a screenshot of this photo from a news article and I just kind of had this moment like I was tired and it was late and just like looking at this picture of him and just being like there's no way and I'm sure you know most first degree people that you talk with probably feel the same thing like I was so surprised that this could happen to someone that I know or thought I knew so well and now you're trying to to grapple with the the person you knew before and what you know now. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are you feeling today, Lex? I'm feeling good. I just uh, had a bunch of Halloween candy. Ooh, a yeah. little late Halloween candy. I love it. I actually just had freezer. a Twix, Twix this morning. I'm like, damn, those are fucking good. Snickers, incredible. Peanut butter cup, unreal. I had a <laughs> peanut butter cup. And I that I froze. I was like, this is one of the best things I've ever tasted. Oh yeah. The ones from Trader Joe's, I freeze them all the time as like a little treat I always forget about because they're just in my freezer. And then I open it up for ice sometimes and I'm like, there we go. I had a Rolo yesterday. Oh, Rolo. Underrated. Underrated. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah. So, so we're good. still working through the Halloween candy. Still working through the Halloween candy. Um, well, before we start today's episode, Alexis and I were just talking before this episode. And if you're listening out there and you have not given us a review and you love the podcast, we would love for you to give us a five-star review. We haven't asked for a review in probably four years. So there probably are a lot of you out there that haven't, haven't given us a review yet. So please do that. Yeah. And just quick reminder, I've seen other people's reviews where it's one star and they're like favorite podcasts. I'm like, that's not, <laughs> it's five Gold stars star. good, one star bad. But some, I could see the confusion. It's like you're number one Yeah, usually is the good thing, but not in the reviews. So five stars is good. Uh, yeah, that's, that's such a bad mistake. It's funny. Yeah, please leave us a review and then we'll just give our quick little Patreon shout out. If you're looking for more first degree content, please join us over on Patreon. We have uh extra episode every single week for you to enjoy over there. And they're all listener submitted episodes for the most part. So join us over there. Give us a review. It's first degree day, you know? It sure is. And we have so many episodes over there to binge now. So if you're out of good podcasts and you're like, what do I listen to now? At least 50 episodes on Patreon. So there you go. Oh, more than that. Well, yeah. that is, uh, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. lose our cool sometimes, and it can happen in the blink of an eye. Sometimes we can argue it's warranted. But have you ever had a knee-jerk emotional response and later regretted it? 
In a rush of anger or hurt, you could have said or done something you didn't mean. Even taking your frustrations or disappointment out on an inanimate object, throwing it across the room, or even hitting or breaking something. I know I've done that. You could even have told a small or maybe big lie when you were afraid of getting in trouble. Has a moment of fear or confusion caused you to act in a way you normally wouldn't? These things are relatable because we've all done them. None of us are perfect or infallible. But what if one of those rash responses could ruin your life? Or worse, take someone else's. We begin today's case on November 4th of 2021. The World Health Organization announced that Europe was the new global epicenter for the COVID-19 pandemic after cases rose 50% in the space of just a month. Fans of the Atlanta Braves were still celebrating the team's historic World Series win that week and their first Major League Baseball championship victory since 1995, defeating the Houston Astros 7-0 and taking the series 4-2. And in the world of pop music, Adele was in her second week at number one with Easy on Me, while Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber were the number two spot with Stay. Still a smash. Bop. So good. And at the movies, people were going to see Dune and Daniel Craig in the 25th James Bond film, No Time to Die. The setting for today's case is Charleston, South Carolina. Situated in the southeast of the state in Charleston County, the coastal city of around 150,000 people is located about 120 miles southeast of the state capital. Founded in 1670, within 10 years, Charleston became the fifth largest city in North America. Vibrant and diverse, but with a complex history, the city was built entirely off the backs of generations of enslaved people from many different ethnic groups. Using slavery and exploitation, European settlers grew incredibly wealthy as Charleston played a major role as a slave trading port, with almost half the country's enslaved people arriving in Charleston, first landing in 1526 on Spanish ships. During the colonial period, the local economy was driven by agriculture, such as rice, crops, but today commercial shipping plays a major role. The ongoing impact of generations of systemic oppression via Jim Crow laws on the city's African-American population is profound. In 2018, the city passed a resolution denouncing slavery, apologizing for and acknowledging that Charleston and its residents profited directly from slave labor. Today, popular with tourists, Charleston's eclectic cultural roots are evident not just in the architecture, historic landmarks, festivals, and world-class food scene, but the very essence of the city. And our first story for today's case is named Rachel, who grew up in Charleston. And something unique about Rachel's childhood is that growing up, she was homeschooled, but not in like the traditional sense that you would think. Rachel went to a Christian homeschool organization where students got to interact with each other outside of the home and participate in all the usual school activities. So it was kind of a really hybrid school social environment. We were homeschooled, and our families were all part of the same homeschool organization called LACHEA. It's L-C-H-E-A, and it stands for the Low Country Christian Home Educators Association. So, like, my graduating class, we had a real graduation, was, I think, 63 kids. We had prom, we had student council, we had field trips, like we had all those standard things you expect to have in high school. We just did our classwork at home. Like it was rare that we didn't have something to go and do with other homeschooled kids. There was like movie nights and stuff like that. So other than the fact that like I stayed at home during the school day in my pajamas and did my work online, 
it didn't really feel like I was doing something that much different. I just didn't have classrooms, which at the same time also wasn't true because my junior and senior year, I took a couple of my like English science, like the base classes at our local community college because they'll give you dual credit so you can get your credit for high school and for college. So I had credits going into the college. So I got classroom experience that way. When Rachel told me about this, I was actually very interested because this would have worked for me. Yeah. Like they got together to do all of the fun stuff, but then work from home. I was like, that sounds best of both worlds. I like that too. When Rachel was in high school, she met a set of twin boys who had started in middle school. Their names were Parker and Nolan. Parker and I met when I was in high school and he would have been in middle school and they lived in West Ashley. When I look at Noah and Parker, they're identical. I think they're technically fraternal. (laughs) It took me years to be able to like pick out features because they both had glasses and they both had braces. And then when one would get rid of the braces a week later, the other one would get rid of their braces. We were all part of student council. I think we did that once a month. And then we'd have the like outreach stuff that we would do for student council. Again, we were all in this huge homeschool organization. So while there were a lot of families and a lot of kids, you kind of ended up always seeing the same people in your age group. So if I went to a field trip, like there was a really good chance that these 10 families were going to be there. Parker and Nolan's large family was very active in the local church community and had even adopted two children from China. They have a younger sister who's a biological sibling, and then they have two younger siblings, a brother and a sister, who are both adopted. They're a really wonderful family. Everybody's family was pretty involved in the church and just genuinely nice people. Their parents were very sweet and just open to everybody. Rachel got to know the Gore family really well and spent a lot of time with Parker and his brother over the years. Both boys were a product of their upbringing, devoted to their faith while being sweet and shy. You rarely ever saw one without the other. And they were very sweet kids. They were very quiet until you really got to know them and until they were comfortable in a certain situation. But once they were comfortable, like they were very fun and outgoing and very easy to like get others to laugh. They were very uh, stereotypical, like homeschooled religious kids of like somebody makes a kind of like sexual or adult kind of joke and, you know, their faces would turn bright red. But they were really kind kids. All the Gore kids were really polite, but they were definitely shy. And it took a while to like get them to open up and be comfortable talking or getting to know other people. After Rachel graduated high school in 2013, she continued to stay in touch with how Parker was doing through social media. And when she returned home for things like her siblings' graduations, she also took the opportunity to catch up with Parker and his family. When I graduated, I went off to college and just kind of lost touch in way of like face-to-face hanging out, but I would still see them every now and then. And I was still close enough that I could kind of watch them grow up 
and with the, everybody having siblings, you know, you go back home for a sibling's graduation and friends' graduations, and I had friends in their graduating class, so I was there for that. After Parker graduated from high school, he did really well, becoming a real estate agent and getting himself a girlfriend. And Rachel was super proud of the young man that Parker was becoming, growing from a shy and awkward boy into quite a success. Seeing them grow up through pictures that their parents would share, like seeing that Parker got his real estate license and he'd post pictures from his progress with that and his mom would post pictures. And it would be these photos of him standing in front of a house that he had just sold with couples that are, you know, buying their their first home or their forever home and posting about how he's so excited that he, you know, he just closed on his first house or closed on his second house. And that's how most of my contact with him was after graduating because of the distance between college and then living out of state for a couple of years. Parker's was a totally normal, upstanding citizen. He's a real estate agent, and he was, he was successful at that. He had a girlfriend. He had a really like wonderful, very typical American family who were active in the church. Then one night in the fall of 2021, Rachel was mindlessly scrolling through social media, as we all do, when a friend suddenly sent her a screenshot It was a news article, which included pictures of Parker and someone else, a guy named Austin. I was up really late because I couldn't sleep. And so I was just scrolling social media aimlessly. And a friend of mine Snapchatted me a screenshot of this photo from a news article and was kind of like, hey is this Parker? And I just kind of had this moment, like I was tired and it was late and just like looking at this picture of him and just being like, there's no way. Like this, no. Like truly this is like Parker Gore. Like that has to be, he's not the only one in the world. So what exactly happened for Parker to suddenly be in the news? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. When her first degree Rachel saw her childhood friend Parker in a news article in November of 2021, her mind immediately darted to the likelihood that something terrible had happened to him. The way the article initially looked, Rachel panicked that Parker had been the victim of a violent crime. But that wasn't the case. And as Rachel read on, her disbelief and shock grew. Looking at the picture and knowing, like, that's the Parker that I know. And for a minute, I thought something's happened to him. He's been hurt by this other person because I hadn't seen the headline. And then, like, really looking at the pictures, I noticed that both he and this other man were in the same blue T-shirt. And I was like, shoot, no, that's a that's a mugshot. And so I, like, really quickly, like, got up and Googled his name. And it says that he was charged with manslaughter I just remember like this terrible like almost like suffocating feeling in my chest of like no somebody got something wrong it it couldn't possibly be this little kid that I know 
So here's what happened. Just after 5 p.m. on November 4th, Parker was driving westbound on the I-26 in North Charleston in his Mazda 6. Up ahead, he saw a Honda Civic have a minor collision with another vehicle. But instead of stopping, the driver of the other vehicle sped off. And the driver was a 32-year-old Spartanburg man named Austin Blaine Faltermeyer. Shocked that he was witnessing a hit and run in real time, Parker dialed 911 to report it. And frankly, that should have been the end of it. But a split-second decision that Parker made next would change the course of many lives forever. It should be that he called, gave him the license plate number, what he saw, where he was, where this car was headed, and then went on his way and went home. But that's, for God knows what reason, not what he did. So Parker decided to take things into his own hands and pursued the Honda driven by Austin. As Austin turned off the highway and merged onto East Montague Avenue, a busy street in North Charleston, so did Parker. He stayed on the phone with 911 and he followed Austin. When Austin realized he was being pursued by another car, he started speeding, driving recklessly as he dodged and weaved in and out of traffic, trying to evade Parker. But when Austin realized Parker had caught up and was right next to him, he became even more aggressive. He intentionally swerved into Parker's Mazda not once, but three times. Austin realized that Parker was following him and used his car to hit Parker's car, most likely to, you know, get him to stop. You don't really want somebody following you while on the phone with the cops. Fearing that Austin wouldn't let up, Parker then pulled out a pistol and fired five shots at the passenger side of the Honda. It somehow just spiraled into this, you know, bumper car road rage incident where Parker ended up pulling a pistol out and just shooting into the other car. He shot multiple times into the other car and hit Christina Cullen in the passenger seat and she was killed and her daughter was in the back seat. As you've just heard, Austin wasn't the only one in the vehicle. His 32-year-old girlfriend, Christina Colon, was a passenger in the car, along with her 7-year-old daughter, who was in the back seat. Christina's daughter wasn't hurt, but Christina was shot in the neck and shoulder, and she was killed. North Charleston PD arrived on the scene around 5.20 p.m., responding to reports of a shooting. They arrested Parker and also Austin, who was said to be too intoxicated and combative to be interviewed. Austin was also said to be known to law enforcement. As it turns out, he was apparently drinking alcohol in front of Christina's daughter either just before they got into the car or during the drive, which is obviously very alarming. Ultimately, both Parker and Austin were taken to jail and charged. We've got breaking news out of North Charleston where two people have been arrested in connection with what North Charleston police call a deadly road rage shooting. Officers say Parker Gore shot into Austin Faltermeyer's vehicle, killing a woman passenger. They say it began on I-26 when Gore saw Faltermeyer crash into a car. Gore took off after him. Police say the two then crashed into each other, then got off of the interstate onto East Montague Avenue. Officers say that's when Faltermeyer crashed into Gore again, and Gore started shooting. A woman inside Faltermeyer's car was killed. A child was also in the car. 
The following day, both men were denied bond. Christina's heartbroken dad attended the hearing and didn't hold back in his comments to the judge and the accused men. Speaking about Austin, Christina's father exclaimed, It's his fault that she is dead. I have a seven-year-old telling me that she was telling you to stop, stop, stop. But you kept drinking, kept doing shots, you requested more liquor. And to Parker, Christina's father said, To shoot my daughter, no less, why wouldn't you shoot the driver? You shot a woman behind a closed window. You weren't involved to begin with, and you shot my daughter through a window, a closed window. The circumstances of Christina's sudden killing are distressing enough, but the fact that she died from being shot has an extra layer of significance and sadness for her family, and here's why. Before Christina began dating Austin just a month before her death, she was waiting for justice to be served in the case of a murder of her former partner named Tim. He was the father of Christina's daughter, and he also died as a result of gun violence. To find out how this previous tragedy unfolded, we have to go back one more time. In August of 2019, Christina Brittany Colon and her daughter were moving into an apartment on Charleston's east side. Helping the 29-year-old move her furniture was her boyfriend, 41-year-old Timothy Heyman Jr., who worked as a sous chef at an oyster bar. One of three children, Christina was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. By 2017, Christina and her immediate family all lived in Charleston. She had lived in a few places by that time, first meeting Tim in Denver, Colorado, where Christina gave birth to their daughter around 2014. The couple split up, but eventually reunited, and Tim moved to Charleston as well. Christina had attended Coastal Carolina University and also studied at Community College in Colorado. She was a fiercely loving mother and known as a genuine, very straightforward, but loyal and passionate friend. On the evening of August 8, 2019, Tim was helping Christina move furniture into her apartment. Just before 7.30 p.m., 18-year-old Shannon Lamont Johnson rode on his bicycle past the moving truck parked outside where Tim and Christina were unloading all of her stuff. And according to court documents, Shannon was verbally aggressive to Tim, who then responded. Shannon approached Tim, and the men got into a physical altercation. Soon, three other men arrived on bicycles, and they all continued to attack Tim. And when Christina pleaded with the men to leave, one of them slapped her in the face. The three additional men then took off, but as Tim and Christina went to retreat inside to where her five-year-old daughter was waiting, Shannon pulled out a 40 caliber handgun. He fired several shots, striking Tim in the chest. Shannon fled the scene on his bicycle, not knowing the whole ordeal had been captured on a neighbor's security camera. Sadly, when first responders arrived soon after, they found Tim clinging to life on the front stoop, and he died later that night. Shannon was identified from the surveillance video in the following days and charged with the murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a violent crime. Deadly violence in the Charleston community getting the attention of city leaders. 41-year-old chef Timothy Hammond Jr. was shot dead on Hanover Street last week. And today, the man charged in his murder, Shannon Johnson, waived his right to a bond hearing. Johnson is 18 years old. Christina was shattered, and while she awaited Shannon's trial, things got worse when she lost her mom to cancer the following year. When Christina started dating 32-year-old Austin Faltermeyer in October of 2021, things seemed to have turned a corner for her. But just a month later, Christina's daughter would be orphaned, losing both of her parents to separate instances of gun violence. And when you think about the odds of this happening in relation to gun violence in general, it's sobering, but in a way, sadly, not entirely surprising. 
In the U.S., when men and anger are combined in a cultural pressure cooker where gun ownership features prominently, we all know that the consequences can be catastrophic, and they often are. And according to gunviolencearchive.org, by the time Christina died in 2021, over 45,000 Americans lost their lives that year to gun violence. Over 1,300 of these deaths were cases of self-defense, and another 2,000 of these were unintentional shootings, while there is a whopping 689 mass shootings. Let that all sink in. Such ready access to firearms and the hair-trigger responses people can have, especially young people, not to mention that our brains are still developing into our mid-20s, it creates a powder keg situation just waiting to explode. Rachel told us that she had no idea that Parker even had a gun and shared her thoughts about the bigger question of the impact of the public's unfettered access to firearms in South Carolina. I did not know that he had a gun, but I wasn't super surprised because it is very normal here in the South. We grow up being told by our parents not to walk on somebody else's property because they might come out and shoot you. And like it's said jokingly, but it's also said with like an underlying seriousness because you can almost guarantee that like I bet most of the people in my neighborhood have a gun in their house. It's just the norm here. His actions surprised me, but the fact that he owned a gun did not surprise me just because it is so normal in the South. Now that Rachel has a family of her own, she's becoming more and more concerned with the prevalence of guns. I didn't really think about it much growing up because it was so normal. My parents did not have a gun because they had five children in the house. People are very protective of the Second Amendment here, especially in the area that we live in. There are a lot of people with stickers on their car of like, you know, those little family stickers where it's like the stick figures for like mom, dad, and X amount of kids. You see them where it's like AK-47s instead of stick figures showing their family or just big decals of assault rifles saying, you can never take away my guns, stuff like that, where it is, it is everywhere. We have huge gun stores here. We have a ton of shooting ranges. And if you try and disagree with the wrong person here, like, you very much have this feeling in the back of your mind of like, oh, they could just pull out a gun and shoot me because they're angry. My sister's high school is searched all the time because they're trying to prevent school shootings. So it's normal, but it's scary normal. So back to the aftermath of Christina's killing. Austin was initially charged with first-degree assault and battery and unlawful neglect of a child or helpless person. But days later, he was also charged with involuntary manslaughter. Parker was also charged with involuntary manslaughter, as well as possession of a weapon during a violent crime. After the arrest, he was kept at the Owl Cannon Detention Center. While they were figuring things out, I know that his family got him out on bond. And I reached out to him just to let him know that if he, he needed anything, like I was I was still here. And I think he, you know, it was kind of just like a thank you. Just like obviously does not want to talk about it. Lawyers are saying don't talk about it. We know that Christina's father was gutted about losing his daughter, and this is coupled with outrage. He wanted somebody to pay for Christina's death, but who? 
Right, where does the accountability lie? Was it Austin's fault for getting behind the wheel while intoxicated in the first place and committing the initial hit and run? Drinking and driving, that's not okay. Someone else's life is going to be put at risk because of you making that decision. Was it Parker's fault for pursuing Austin and not trusting law enforcement to do their job after he called it in? And then there's the fact that Austin escalated things by repeatedly running into Parker's car to get him off his trail and possibly harm him. Or was it ultimately Parker's fault for then shooting at the Honda? Christina died as a result of a cataclysmic chain of events where one thing led to another and then another. There are just so many competing factors here which could have changed the course of events and prevented things from escalating. Rachel told us what she thought about where the blame lies. I fell very much in the category of the vast majority of the blame should be falling on Austin because he decided to get behind the wheel inebriated with a child in the car, let alone another passenger. He hit someone else and made the decision to flee. And then he made the decision to hit Parker. And if any of those things hadn't happened, this woman would still be alive. This girl would still have her her mother. But Parker shouldn't have had a gun. He shouldn't have had a gun in the car. And he should not have followed Austin. And he should not have pulled that gun out. Even though I believe based off of my history with him and my understanding of him that most likely he pulled the gun out because he was scared and because in his brain at 24 years old not being able to to fully see the consequences of your action because your your brain is not fully developed thought this is the only way that i'm going to get out of this alive even though that was that was not the correct choice and he is going to have to live with that every day for the rest of his life Morally, when it comes to appropriating blame to Parker and Austin, this is a complex case. But what does the law say? Well, what happened next might give you a clue, and we're going to try to break it down for you. After spending a week in jail, Parker was bonded out by his family until his next court date. He was jailed for, I want to say, about a week before his parents posted bail, and he's been out since. But at a preliminary hearing in June of 2022, Parker's attorney argued that his client was lawfully acting in self-defense when he shot at the Honda, not knowing there was more than one person inside the vehicle. It was claimed that Parker felt that Austin was using the moving vehicle as a weapon and feared for his safety to such a degree that he felt he had no choice but to defend himself by firing at the Honda. The judge ultimately agreed, determining that Parker acted in self-defense and therefore wouldn't face any charges for his role in Christina's killing. What was it legally that got Parker off the hook here? So we know for a self-defense claim to be successfully argued, a defendant needs to prove a deadly level of force was reasonable in their attempt to prevent death or serious injury from someone threatening them. It doesn't matter whether the person actually is in danger, as long as they reasonably felt they were in danger. South Carolina is one of almost 30 states which has a self-defense law commonly referred to as stand your ground, also known as shoot first. But formally, it was known as the Protection of Persons and Property Act. The legislation has been criticized for essentially making it easier for people to commit violence in public, especially in self-defense situations where they could just as easily retreat but choose not to do so. 
The inevitable increase in firearm homicide rates, thanks to laws like these, is troubling, where people know there's a good chance they can invoke a claim of self-defense and get away with it. These sorts of laws also make it difficult for police to properly investigate these cases due to their inability to arrest someone if they claim they've acted in self-defense. So it makes it harder to start an investigation immediately. Right. And to be clear, we're not saying that Parker was this trigger-happy guy out looking for a fight or to hurt somebody. From everything that Rachel has told us and what we've been able to find in the research, it suggests the actual opposite. And if Austin hadn't committed the hit and run and then repeatedly rammed Parker's vehicle, would we even be in this situation to begin with? And personal responsibility aside, when you consider that these stand-your-ground laws are associated with up to an additional 700 homicides a year, you do have to ask whether our lawmakers truly have the best interests of the public at heart, especially when we know that every hour of every day, people of color are more likely to die as a result of gun violence. The decision for Parker's charges to be dropped outraged Christina's father. He was already mourning the death of his wife from cancer on top of his son-in-law, and now not only was his daughter gone, but the man who had fired the gun was in his eyes getting away with it. Christina's father now spends his days caring for his granddaughter with help from his other children. But Christina's father is also focused on ensuring that Parker is held accountable for his role in Christina's killing. He wants justice for his daughter, and he's continuing to fight to get Parker before a grand jury, but it's not known how likely this is to actually happen. The kind of one voice that I've been seeing still is Christina's dad of just kind of pleading to to news outlets and kind of anyone that can provide the correct platform of saying that something needs to be done here, both in the case of, of specifically Parker, but also guns in general, because of his experience with it and his granddaughter's experience with it of somebody's got to do something to prevent these things from, from happening to other families. He has been very vocal about wanting to see Parker in jail and staying there. And I, as a parent, can absolutely understand that. If this was my child, like I would also be calling for the same thing, especially when his granddaughter has lost both parents to gun violence. Like I absolutely understand where he's coming from. There was no reason for her to have died. No reason. Her father has put a lot of blame on North Charleston police as well. And just saying like they, they blew it. They could have done better and they didn't. And I believe Ed Colon is trying to get the case before a grand jury to try and get justice for his daughter. It will be interesting to see how this all plays out, both in terms of Parker and Austin's alleged roles in Christina's death, because it's important to look at both sides of this, not just from a moral and legal perspective in terms of who bears the greater responsibility, but from the point of view of Christina's family. And sadly for them, this may be one of those times where it's the expression, it's not a justice system, it's a legal system, could never be more true. And even if Christina's dad does get Parker back before a grand jury, they may also determine that Austin is responsible for Christina's death based on how the law is written. And they might decide Parker, again, shouldn't face charges. A defense attorney would also argue as to Parker's background and frame of mind at the time of the shooting itself. It seems that when Parker made that split-second decision to follow Austin, he thought that he was doing the right thing. He doesn't have a criminal record and is ridden with guilt that he's taken the life of an innocent woman, which will be on his conscience forever. 
Of course, we're not saying any of this is right or justifiable. It's just taking a layperson's look at how things might play out should Parker go back to court. Rachel has her own perspective in supporting Parker, but she also does acknowledge that she's biased. And she's also fully aware that she has something that few others do in this case, the privilege of context knowing Parker as she does. I also have the bias of this is a friend of mine. This is someone I watched grow up, someone who I really and truly believe is is a good person who was in a scary situation and made an absolutely unokay, horrible decision. It's been hard to grapple with from the, the moment I found out with, about it because if it was any other person, I would be saying, no, he should be in jail. He killed someone. But I'm also a friend who watched him grow up of being like, no, I, I don't want to see his life being taken away as well. This Probably. isn't some angry dude with a rap sheet with, you know, assaults and, you know, he's going around where you can look at him and be like, oh, yeah, of course this was going to end up where he, you know, be in life. This was somebody who was, who was on a really good path. He's doing wonderful things. And then suddenly this thing that, that does not jive with, with anything else happens. And there's a lot of just like cognitive dissonance. It took me I, like a week of just feeling so angry and confused because it didn't make sense. Because I absolutely believe that, that in his mind, he thought, I'm doing a good thing. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be able to tell the police where he's going, what his car looks like, his license plate or whatever. I think that, that he genuinely did think, especially, I'm doing a good thing. And it just spiraled out and devolved into this horrific situation that just didn't need to happen. But Christina should still be here and her daughter should still have a mother. In determining blame here, we do have to ask some confronting questions about gun culture. If Parker hadn't been carrying a gun, would Christina be alive today? I'm going to guess, yeah. If her former boyfriend's killer didn't have such easy access to a gun, would he be alive? I'm going to say, yeah. The answer to both these questions is obvious. I feel like this could have been prevented if we had better gun laws because like there was nothing about this family that would have ever had anyone saying, oh, this terrible thing is going to happen down the road. I never saw him or anyone in his family, for that matter, show any kind of anger or aggression. They weren't one of the families that I knew that like go and shoot guns for fun. But 24 just feels like such a baby to allow them to just be able to go out and buy a gun, even if they have a beautiful, perfect, clean background and appear to be upstanding citizens. Like that just feels so young when you're still making rash decisions. And we know scientifically that you're you're not really fully done developing, even if it came in the form of like some type of new legislature or law or something to have America just be more mindful of, of how old someone is when they're able to purchase a gun. Christina died not ever knowing whether the man who murdered her boyfriend, Tim, in 2019 would ever face justice. But in early December of 2022, 22-year-old Shannon Johnson was found guilty of murder and possession of a weapon during a violent crime and sentenced to 50 years in prison. The whole tragedy of Christina's death has profoundly shaped Rachel's perspective on how the cultural ripples of gun violence really hit home. It definitely 
made me much more aware of the prevalence of gun violence. It's made me more aware of just how quickly bad things can happen. You can be anywhere doing anything, regardless of how mundane it is, and your entire life can either be taken or flipped upside down because one person got angry or got scared or was under the influence of something, knowing that we so freely allow just about anyone to carry a gun makes going out in public a little unnerving. And especially with with the car, like reading and seeing what happened to Parker, this is absolutely terrifying that you could piss off the wrong person for the smallest, stupidest thing and and everything can be over. And also this like underlying feeling of like, how well do you know the people in your life? I, before this happened, truly would have thought that one of the Gore boys would be the last ones I knew to, to end up in a situation like this. And yet one of them did. And just what people are capable of and in any given situation, it makes you very like, I was so surprised that this could happen to someone that I know or thought I knew so well. And now you're trying to, to grapple with the, the person you knew before and what you know now. There's no information yet as to when or if Austin will ever be going to trial over his involvement in Christina's death, so watch out for the space for updates. One of the great tragedies of this case is that not one, but two people were involved in a series of events which resulted in killing Christina. However, as we've heard, it's possible that under South Carolina's laws, as they currently are, no one will be held accountable for Christina's murder in an appropriate way. Of course, there's issues in this case that are raised when it comes to access to guns, responsibility and decision making, and how people respond to acts of aggression from others. It's all very complex and nuanced, way more so than we can cover in just one episode. Our hope is that Christina's story helps provide a vehicle for these important conversations so more children don't end up without their parents. Broad change is needed and a deep shift in the way we think about individualism versus collectivism when it comes to addressing both homicidal and accidental gun violence on our streets. A huge thank you to Rachel for being our first degree guest for today's episode. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for more true crime content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. 
Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Records, Live 5 News, The Post and Courier, ABC News 4, NBC News, WYFF4 News, the South Carolina Legislature, Holland and Ursi Law Firm, Giffords Law Center, GunViolenceArchive.org, EverytownResearch.org, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.